Let's pray. Our loving Father, we pray that uh, as we open up your word and think about this important topic again uh, regarding unanswered prayer, uh, that you'd speak to our hearts and minds, uh, that you'd be growing us to be more and more like Jesus. Uh, we pray this in his precious name. Amen. Uh, please be seated. Uh, when you arrived this morning, you would have got a warm welcome at the door and you should have received uh, this sermon outline uh, where you can follow the points. And on the back of that sermon outline are a whole bunch of verses that we will re uh, refer to from time to time. Uh, prayer is one of our core values. We have five core values. Faithful biblical teaching is core value number one. Prayer is our second core value. And we began our series last week on unanswered prayer. Uh, we applied wisdom and thought about life in our broken world. Uh, we opened our Bibles and we saw the damage effect of sin has on our spiritual life and our relationship with God. And we also remembered the words of that psalm, Psalm 115, verse 3, that our God sits on his throne and he does what he wants. But today is part two. And I want to begin by asking you this morning, is unanswered prayer even a thing? Is it even a thing? Because uh, it's an important question because there are many who say there's no such thing. So there's prolific Christian writers. Uh, if you've heard of Tim Keller, maybe you have. You certainly should have heard of J.I. Packer. Uh, most have read him. Good, Nancy's smiling, that's good. I know Nancy would have read J.I. Packer for sure. Uh, they all say there's no such thing. So we have these heavy hitters in the Christian world who say, no way, there's no such thing as unanswered prayer. So on what basis are they saying this? How can this be? Well, a significant issue of unanswered prayer lies in Jesus' extravagant promises. Five, at least five different times, Jesus will say in the scriptures something like, you ask and I will give it to you. Ask anything. And maybe we heard that in the Bible reading as Rosemary read that out for us. All of those verses on the reverse there uh, of your outline. Mark 11, Matthew 21, 22, Matthew 18, 19, John 14, 12 to 14, John 15, 7, John 15, 16. Uh, they're all extravagant promises. And I wonder what you make of them. When Jesus says, ask and I'll give it to you, what do you do with that? Do you believe him? Is this outrageous and extravagant promise is it consistent with your experience and your life? I mean, if it's a blank check from Jesus, maybe we're thinking, well, show us the money, Jesus. Show us the money. So what is going on? Notice uh, in all of these verses, all of these striking encouragements to pray by Jesus, they all have a qualifier. So I've underlined them for you. So you can see there in Mark 11, uh, chapter 11 verse 22 the qualifier is have faith in God you have a part to play or he'll say a bit later uh, 
Belief is important. You'll say that twice. Or Matthew 21, 22, you can see it plainly there. If you believe, that sounds like a qualifier, doesn't it? Uh, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Uh, Matthew 18 says that if two of you on earth agree uh, about anything they ask for, it's going to be done for them. But there's a qualifier. You're going to get two people to agree. Uh, John 14, the qualifier is whoever believes in me. Or later on in verse 14, you may ask me for anything in my name. Yeah, good. Uh, John 15 is the one that might make us nervous. Uh, Jesus says, if you remain in me and my words. <laughs> That's conditional, isn't it? If you remain in me and in my words, uh, ask whatever you wish. And John 15, verse 16 again, uh, if you ask in my name. So what is going on? Uh, well, we've seen that they all have a qualifier. They're not unconditional blanket promises. Uh, God's not a, like a genie waiting for a rub on his lamp, hoping to pop out and submit to our bidding. We don't send up prayers like it's just one-way traffic and hope for the best. Uh, all of these striking encouragements that Jesus offers are anchored in relationship. They're anchored in our response to God, who is our Father and we are his children. Our prayers are to be anchored in partnership also, where we must see the part we have to play. And what is our part? Our part is faith. And if faith sounds a bit too vague to you, go with words like trust, humility, obedience, submission, dependence, and roll them all up into a bundle and that's where you have faith. And so we have responsibilities and we have accountabilities in our relationship with God just as we have accountabilities and responsibilities in any relationship. All right, what else do we need to acknowledge? So prayer uh, has qualifiers. Uh, notice also these promises don't appear in a vacuum. They don't just fall out of the sky devoid of a story. So who... As we look at these verses from the Gospels, who were the first recipients of these promises? Who is Jesus speaking to? The disciples, that's right. And they are the primary listeners and the primary recipients. And so in the original setting, the gravity of these promises makes sense. Because in a hostile world, amidst enormous opposition... Jesus has a mission to go to the cross where he's going to die for our sins. He'll bear God's wrath and judgment for our salvation, such as our need. And this is the night before the most significant event in human history, where Jesus will die on a cross. And all that the curse brings are those things that we complain to God about. Jesus is going to start shoving it all into reverse. He's going to bring life and renewal and forgiveness instead of the curse. And the disciples, what are they going to do? Well, as we read in Acts, they will continue Christ's work by following in his footsteps. They will risk life and limb and devote their entire lives at great cost. Little wonder, Jesus says, 
Ask anything. It's going to be tough. Ask anything. Whatever it takes, fellas. Whatever it takes, ask the Father in my name. And I really do believe in that context, these disciples, Peter, James, John, they could have asked the risen Christ for anything and he would have done it. I have no doubt about that. The difference is that what they would have asked for and what we might ask for are two different things. And that's what I want to show you this morning. See, their hearts are going to be on fire for the mission and work of Christ as Christ lives them, in them, and through them by the Holy Spirit. They'll be persecuted and jailed and even executed, but the gospel is going to spread like wildfire. You can read that all there in Acts. And so I want to say to you, if this is the context, it's a bit of a jump, isn't it, to grab these verses and isolate them from the story and from history and make them about me and my wants and my wish list, isn't it? You know, we might be tempted to read these words with our Western eyes and think Jesus wants me to be financially prosperous. Bring on the Mercedes. Oh, I'd love a new caravan. Or maybe he'll pay off the mortgage or the credit card. Or he'll bless me with grandchildren or good health, or whatever we ask, whatever your heart's desire. All I need to do is claim the promise, right? Rub the genie. But let's, let's try this thinking from another angle. Imagine you, instead of launching these words and bringing them forward to 2018, imagine you are back there in the upper room. The night before Jesus' eventual death, and execution, and imagine you're presenting your wish list to him. You're not going to do it, are you? Like, w would anybody really do that? And so we need to think about that as we think about these words. One thing we have adopted, which I think is helpful, absolutely, is praying in Jesus' name. Nearly every prayer we pray in the prayer book is in Jesus' name. It's a good practice. But what do you think is going on when we say in Jesus' name? Why do we even say in Jesus' name when we pray? Do we think it's a polite sign-off? Full stop. Or kind of like a yours faithfully in Jesus' name? Maybe. It's good because Jesus tells us to do it, to pray in his name. But why? Why does Jesus tell us to do it? I think part of the answer is in putting Jesus' name to your prayers, you're putting his power and authority to your request, your petition. You're putting his name to it. So when I was growing up, my sisters would use the phrase, Dad said, if you don't, da 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 da, Dad said. It's not just me, is it? We're all familiar with that. Dad said. Actually, in my house, it's mum said. But anyway, that's another story. But when dad said, that carried power and authority. That, that put it the, woo, I better sit up and take notice. Because suddenly my annoying sisters are claiming to re represent dad. And they're claiming to know his wants and his wishes. When they say dad said, 
It means that it's consistent with Dad's agenda, right? And isn't this similar? As we pray in Jesus' name, aren't we claiming the same thing, the same kind of idea? And so if that is true, as now we need to think about that a bit more, maybe it's helpful to ask ourselves, as we pray, is this a prayer Jesus himself would pray? Is this a prayer Jesus himself would pray? Is this consistent with everything Jesus stands for in light of who he is, his identity, his character, his work, his precious gospel? And more, is this going to glorify God? Verse 13 of chapter 14 of John's gospel, I'll I'll do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Is that the shape of our prayers? So imagine the trouble my sisters would be in if they misused the dad said line. It'd be an outright lie, wouldn't it? I reckon they'd be in massive trouble off my dad. And because that's true, I want to encourage you as you think about the in Jesus name prayer, which is every prayer for the Christian, because it's not meant to be an empty headed throwaway line. Like, I'm finished now, God, and hang up the phone. It actually requires a bit of thought. So on what basis do we call on the name of Jesus? Well, here again we see the power of the gospel. Because to pray in the name of Jesus is also about making Jesus the object of our faith. Faith is only as good as the object. When prayers are asked in Jesus' name, they're offering royal access to the throne of God. That we can come into the presence of a holy God on account of our King and Saviour, Jesus. Earlier in the Gospel of John, in the same chapter, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Staggering claim. And so... Maybe as we pray in Jesus' name, this is an acknowledgement of that. There's no other way to come to you, Father, but apart, but on account of Jesus. When we come in Jesus' name, we're saying we have a mediator. We have an advocate. Uh, uh, We have a way. And his name is Jesus. And I think it's wonderful news that Jesus is our mediator. Because it gives us confidence that when we pray, he receives them and maybe he edits them and maybe he even changes them and then he passes them on to God. Our sin-stained prayers come through Jesus and I actually think he makes them fit for a holy God. Here, boss, this is what they would have said if they were a little bit more godly. What do you think? I find that very comfortable, uh, comforting. So he's our mediator and advocate. That's Hebrews 4 and 10. And that comfort should take away any fear of praying. So are we beginning to see what constitutes effective prayer, the yes prayer? Notice we haven't talked about posture. We haven't talked about whether you should kneel or, or, or not. We haven't talked about what we do with our hands. Might be this, might be that. 
We haven't talked about what we do with our eyes, whether they're open or closed. We haven't talked about how fervent we might be, how many yes lords we can get in the space of two minutes, because some people like to do that. Effective prayer comes down to Jesus. Nothing more and nothing less, because he has provided the way. It is all about Jesus. And so if sin was the barrier last week, which we clearly saw that it is a barrier, then Jesus, well, he is the solution. He is the way, isn't he? And now the living Christ dwells in us. The Holy Spirit intercedes and helps us in our weakness. And it teaches us to call on God, to do what Jesus did and to call on God as Abba Father. The Holy Spirit is going to change the heart of the prayer. He'll change our hearts from self-interested prayer to prayer that exalts Christ and glorifies God. And so pastorally, at the heart of this issue of unanswered prayer is our response to the gospel. It's our response to Jesus and what he's done for us. Let me give you a working example. Um, Dad's diagnosis of stage 4 cancer. Uh, you know that he died last year. Uh, as his life ebbed away, as a family, the Draycotts, we gave thanks to God that Dad's eternal future was secure because of Jesus. There we are straight away. We prayed that we and Dad... We, the family, and, and mum and dad, would be spiritually comforted and strengthened and that we would remain faithful to the end and that through suffering, somehow Christ would be honoured. Amidst pain and loss, we entrusted ourselves to the goodness of God. Uh, did we still wear death like a stinky old coat that you can't shake off? Uh, yeah. Yeah, was it still horrible? Yes. Death has a lingering stench. But, but praise be to God, Jesus takes away the sting. See, the world is broken and none of us are immune. The world is cursed and that is all our faults. And Adam's first recorded prayer in Genesis, do you know what it is? The first recorded prayer in the Bible by a human is I'm naked and I'm afraid. <laughs> I, I find that very powerful. I'm naked and I'm afraid, and that's the consequence of sin right there. That's us too, isn't it, before a holy God? We are all naked and we should be afraid. But thanks be to God for prayer, because we have an avenue to come to God in submission in our darkest hour, if you like. As we see Dad wasting away in his bed, subject to the curse from which none of us are immune, we know that God has a solution. And that solution is Jesus. As Dad lay there, we knew that cancer, cancer wasn't Dad's greatest problem. And his looming death wasn't going to be his greatest problem. Sin is the problem. 
But praise be to God, he had forgiveness. That his need of forgiveness has been met by his King and Saviour, Jesus. And praise be to God, we knew as a family that Dad knew that. That Dad's passing wouldn't be the end, but a new beginning. Because he had the best thing possible, God's forgiveness. In Jesus, we knew that there was more to come. That the curse come the end of history, human history. The curse will be gone and sin will be gone and evil will be gone. There'll be no more sickness. There'll be no more cancer. There'll be no more dementia or diabetes or depression. Jesus will return and do away with famine and he'll do away with poverty and corruption and injustice and he'll do away with death. And at last day, he'll make everything new and life will spring eternally. And so we learn to pray in light of all of that. You see the way Jesus broadens our horizons when we pray. I think when we pray in light of the gospel, that God will be glorified, we're going to get a yes every single time. That's the kind of prayer that God will never say no to. Dear God, through this situation, would you be glorified somehow? The answer is always yes. The Apostle Paul is another example. In 2 Corinthians 12, uh, he waited for the removal of a thorn from his side. And he prayed and prayed and prayed about this thorn in his side. Uh, But it resulted in something infinitely greater than the immediate healing that he sought. Paul learned through unanswered prayer that God's grace is sufficient. That God's grace and kindness is the main thing. He had to learn that despite physical pain, he already had the best thing in the world. Ever. Because in Christ he had God's forgiveness and he had the hope of new life. All to the glory of God. See, our suffering and our difficult circumstances, they're never to be discounted. But we do remember they're just for a season. Yet God's love and grace and forgiveness isn't just for a season, it's for eternity. It's for eternity. Ask for anything sure, Jesus says, but know in Christ you already have everything. Come to God. See your need. Confess your sin. Look at the cross. And see his love for you there. And see the answer is and always has been yes, yes, yes. Such as his love and grace. A great source of peace and comfort for us. Sometimes unanswered prayer is related to waiting. Moses waited six days for an answer. Daniel waited three weeks. Jeremiah, ten days. Simeon and Anna, they just waited a lifetime. Uh, Luke 18 is a story, a parable about uh, a lesson in waiting. Hebrews 11 lists heroes of faith who were commended for faith, yet none received what was promised. Maybe that resonates with you. I've been praying for a mate, a lifelong mate and his wife, who are still resistant to the Lord. 
then I take a deep breath and then I think, well, what's the point of faith if it's never tested or exercised? So let's wrap this up. Do you know what God does with our prayers at the end of history? Here's another answer to unanswered prayer. What does God do with our prayers at the end of history? Well, we heard when Peter read from Revelation 5, and you can see it there at the bottom of your uh, list of Bible verses, and in Revelation chapter 8, the prayers of God's people, along with the fire of God, get that in your imagination, the fire of God and the prayers of his people will serve to bring about the consummation of his kingdom as everything is laid bare and made new. At the end of world history, when God brings judgment and renewal, the prayers of God's people will be poured out. That's what Revelation chapter 5 verse 8 says and Revelation chapter 8 verse 3 to 5. What does that mean? My goodness, you won't want to think about that too much, do you? What does it mean? It means, if anything, it means our prayers are not vapour. Our prayers are not vapour. Prayer is not empty and pointless. The value of prayer, which seems to be vapid to the atheist and even cynical for some believers, it plays a part in the judgment and the coming of the kingdom of heaven. So in the kingdom of heaven, there is no such thing as unanswered prayer. God hears us every time. And more we know that when God's kingdom comes in its fullness, God is going to reverse the curse fully. Our prayers will be ultimately answered as sin and death and evil are banished eternally. When we come into the new creation, every reason for petitionary prayer is going to evaporate. In heaven, you'll have no need to ask God for anything, for in Christ he has already blessed us with everything. And so we cry with Christians the world over, come Lord Jesus, come. So how should we pray then? What does a prayer like this look for, like? Well, you'll have to come for that next week, won't you?